listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. This week, we are celebrating Halloween with something a little bit different. So far, the show has consisted of career-spanning interviews with composers not featured in the Score to Death book. But today's episode is part one of a deep dive into an iconic film series with someone I've gotten to know quite well since I first interviewed them for the book back in February of 2014. Alan Howarth is an accomplished film composer, special sound effects artist, and sound designer, whose work in film music began alongside the great John Carpenter on the film Escape from New York back in 1981. His interview in the Scored to Death book explores his life in music and film through almost three hours worth of detailed interviews, not only highlighting his film music career, but also his post-production sound work on such notable films as Poltergeist and Star Trek's 1 through 6. This week, however, Alan is joining me for an in-depth discussion focusing specifically on his extensive work on the Halloween film franchise. And we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So, you entered the Halloween series with Halloween 2. Correct. just finishing wrapping up the scoring my first score and it was with John on Escape from New York so we were at the we were at the end doing a mix on whatever and he sort of casually looks over to me and says oh by the way Alan you're gonna do Halloween but you know go do that and basically the you know the tagline was I'm gonna be too busy filming the thing to deal with this right now so you win the prize so in in one comment because he was too busy, I wound up being a Halloween person. You know, what a, what a blessing. So he went out and got busy doing, filming the thing. Rick Rosenthal went ahead and shot Halloween 2. And at some point I get the film. And in this case, obviously they still want to use the Halloween score. But with, uh, you know, some extra new and improved with Lemon stuff. And also shaped to the new movie. Because obviously there's timing issues in these things and and whatever, but you know, John, John in Halloween one mapped out the Halloween theme, the Lori theme, the, you know, the shape stocks, uh, and some other things that wanted to be reused because it's a great score, uh, you know, uh, in some ways it's, uh, the, you know, the, one of the greatest horror movie scores ever composed. So, uh, I got my hands on the 16 track master of Halloween one 
that he recorded with Dan Wyman, transferred that to a 24-track, which gave me a minimum of eight new empty tracks to add to. And as it turned out, it wasn't really a full 16 tracks at any time. It was probably anywhere from nine to 12 tracks with a couple open tracks. And, and there was one track that was like the click track that kind of went, which wasn't a click, but it was like a little punch. And I actually used that when I made the, the, the soundtrack CD for Halloween and, and also the thing to put a pulse into the Halloween. Yeah. Um, and and that, actually, that was a ghost of having done the Halloween CD prior to that for John uh, for release from Verez. And even though there was no pulse in the original score, I used that pulse to kind of put a beat behind it. So, and some for some people, I, I soiled that that soundtrack album. Eventually, we went back and I did one without the pulse. But and he said, just do whatever you want. You know, make it something people can listen to. So I thought the beat helped at the time. <laughs> uh, now, if I recall correctly. When you were introduced to John, you weren't really familiar with his work up to that point. Correct. Yeah, no, I wasn't a fan of John Carpenter. I knew he was a cool guy. I mean, that that was that was known. I, I knew what Halloween was, but I wasn't somebody that could recite Halloween, you know, front to back, and was at the Church of Halloween. Sure. But had you seen it before you started working on the second one? Yeah, I certainly. I watched it to to refresh myself. You know, where where things go. Uh, you know, th- think of it this way: as as a musical score, there's a map, right? It goes from here to here to here to here to here. Here's the music you use when this happens, and here's the music you use when this happens. So I needed to understand that to now retrofit the original music to the new movie, and then also to add to it. So I think which the if you listen to Halloween one versus two, the first recordings were a little lighter, and and I don't know what the world would be, but it is what it is. So I, I overdubbed into John's tracks more synthesizer tracks and made it a bit more dark and gothic. That's where I was going with this, like Evo, you know? Yeah. So, so, so that, was my, that was my contribution to it. And there was a couple times when the old score didn't fit and I went ahead and made up a, a new cue of some music that was generic or like I remember there was one, uh, one we called Flats in the Parking Lot, which was sort of a sound design cue. just new material it wasn't anything it was in Halloween one is the music that john recorded for the first one in the second one at all or is it all kind of your redoing of the original score no no actually i used the tracks yeah. from the 16 track added my tracks and then combined them all together i see yeah so it's a it's a hybrid yeah it's a hybrid since writing the book i've become friends with a lot of people that are into horror movie scores uh, more than I even knew existed in my real life. <laughs> and uh, they were very excited when I wrote the book. And I've also discovered that a lot of them, a handful of the guys I work with in, in TV post-production are a bit of gearheads. And so they mm-hmm. are always asking me like, what, what were they using? What was Alan using on this? So what, what was your, equipment rig back then when you're working on this film all right so this would be my rig a la 1982 at that time indigenously i had two arp avatars which are basically arp odysseys but then i was running them from sequencers so i had an arp 16 channel sequencer 
and then also a sequential circuits model 700 programmer. So one of the, one of the things that that was you know upgraded to those things is obviously the original synthesizers were something that you had to dial up a program, and when you change it, you move you know, you move the knobs around and you had to write down where you were the last time, or you couldn't get back there again. So one of the things that picked up from the 700 programmer was presets. You know, it remembered a, a series of settings that could then be played into the to the ARP avatar, the two of them, uh, one one being from the normal and the other one being programmable. So that made sort of this double ARP Odyssey thing being sequenced. Then the keyboard of the Prophet 5 uh, was the controller. So it had control voltage out on it. This was before MIDI. And that's how I, I you know, would change notes and stuff like that. I also had, at that time, I believe, still an ARP Quadra sitting there, which was uh, sort of the last of the ARP instruments, new generation uh, that was polyphonic and had several layers. And it was a pretty nice, pretty nice instrument. It had certainly the sound. So I was an ARP guy. And that, that actually is a subset of the fact that I, I worked for ARP. So when I was right after Weather Report 1979, 78-79. You were touring with the, the band as kind of the synthesizer guy. Right, exactly. I was the, the, the keyboard tech, as, uh, as we would call it, or in the generic firm, uh, a roadie. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> set up the gear every day. But it was a high-tech roadie. I mean, there was, there was nine, well, whatever, two ARP 2600s. Two Profit Fives, a Rhodes piano, phasers, an Oberheim 8 voice, a Help and Still piano pickup, uh, and an ARP Axe, which were part of Joe's rig, that we toured all over the world with this thing. And golly, these were studio instruments. So you, it was like a race car. You needed somebody that knew how to take it apart and fix it in case uh, the journey from the last gig to the next would cause something to change. Sure. And then I know also because I was you know into it full-time, for a couple of years, I started to customize things and add switches. And, you know, I, I did things like pull the power supplies out of the ARPs and the profits so that the transformers were nowhere near the interior of the the reverb or in case of the roads, the transformers on top of the roads. And that made a hum. So I, I de-hummed everything and made it nice and clean and wow. made, made a rotary. So anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> so anyhow, I was an ARP guy. Uh, then sequential circus profit was what I had brought to Joe's Allen on the weather report back in 78. And so I was a profit guy already. I was a believer. It was one of the great innovations to synthesizers. Once you could save the settings and go to another setting and get back to the original. And as I complained before, if you didn't have that, you had to write all this stuff down and it weren't necessarily back to square one. Yeah. So that, that was the, the front rig. A tape recorder wise, there was a task M80-8 track. And we also rented a Stevens 2-inch 24-track. The mixer was a Tapco, which later became Mackie, pair of, I had a 16-channel and a 24-channel mixers in there, of which the 16-channel was the input mixer, and the 24-channel mixer was the output mixer of the 24-track machine. So it looked pretty cool. Yeah. Reverb-wise and effects-wise, I had a uh, um, an MXR digital delay, and sort of, a, oh, I had a, a, other things. I had an, um, a Fender Princeton Reverb. I uh, had my Stratocaster, my jazz bass, and then also a Fender pedal steel guitar, which was great for doing effects on. I didn't really ever play it well, but I, it, was, it was neat to do what I wanted to do with it. Yeah. 
and then I had a cello uh, with a with a Barkas Berry pickup on it, which which was good for effects, and I used that. And uh, that's kind of it. That was it for the oh, and, and a Lindrum machine. Take that back. Yeah. So I had a Lindrum in there. So the Lindrum was the master clock for the rig. Drove the sequencers, and had its own synchronizer track laid off in analog to you know track twenty three of the tape recorder, so that you could go back. The drag was. If you wanted to use that that feature in the sequence, you had to go back to the beginning of the queue, turn everything off, push the button, and start the tape rolling, and it would pick up from the first edge of the signal. You couldn't do anything down in the middle. Wow. Because they didn't know where it was. So, yeah. so there's a certain amount of fooling around. So that, that for the geeks, that's that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> now, when uh, John lays on you that you're going to be working on two, was it something you were interested in, or <laughs> was it did you just say yes out of the pressure of the uh, suggestion well no, I, I didn't feel any weight it was just like uh like in college you know uh, today we're going to study trigonometry and tomorrow we're going to do geometry you know it's just that it was another facet of the world of john carpenter i was great to just have work yeah i, I wasn't i wasn't all excited or not excited I, I went in neutral watched the movie looked at it as a job and then finally got serious about making the score for it in his absence. And and so I had Deborah Hill and Rick Rosenthal as my sounding boards because John was in British Columbia doing things. You didn't feel pressure at the asking, but was there pressure that you were working with such what I would imagine even at that point was a pretty popular score. Like by that point, Halloween had become pretty big, obviously big enough to do, to do a sequel. Was there any pressure for this being your second outing in film scoring and this time without John, you know, by your side the whole time. So was there a little pressure to deliver? Be honest with you. No, I just took it as uh, you know, I'd already done star Trek. I already done escape from New York. I was working on Poltergeist at the time, so I was in a an A-League mode where this was equally weighted to all the other stuff. The main thing was to do a good job and get it get it where it needed to go on time. Now, throughout the 80s when you were working with John, your credit on the cover of the albums mm-hmm. kind of changed. What did they all mean? As you were given more creative control, did, did you get a different credit? Yeah, I'd say there was a modulator. When we got to Halloween 3, it was an and. And uh, when we did uh, Prince of Darkness and Big Trouble, it was an and. That, that was a mini complaint on my part, I, I felt. you know. But in the beginning, I mean, here I am, just Alan Howarth in his dining room in Glendale. And here comes John Carpenter, who is John Carpenter, you know, whatever waiting there is. And so, you know, he did his own music. To, so to ask for a, how, how do you want your credit to be? I remember seeing a lot of movies where XYZ production is done by XYZ and then in association with Paramount Pictures or association with Technicolor or something. Sure. So that was my format. It's just a way to not take away from the, the strength and, and the, the who he is, but uh, a me too kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so because John was away, basically you were working with Deborah and uh, Rick Rosenthal. Yeah. And. I don't know, were there a lot of sessions where they were in there with you, working with you, or was it basically just kind of the typical spotting session, and then you go off on your own and do it? Yeah, it was part B. I went for a spotting session. We identified the places where the Bible of Halloween says use this kind of music here and use this kind of music there. And then they sent, I, would, I worked pretty much by myself in uh, 
in, in my home studio in, in the dining room in Glendale. It was very low key, but it was the stuff, you know, that same stuff John and I had used to score Escape from New York with. And uh, then I would turn in the music. And in this case, I didn't have true synchronization. It was a matter of watching the, the movie from a VHS tape and then kind of doing something that seemed correct or appropriate with it. And then I could go back and kind of push play on the videotape recorder and play on the tape recorder and have them kind of roll. Yeah. So those mixes were then turned into the film house because they were still mixing on mag. So there was a music editorial moment where the trans, the, the, the transferred music had to be cut in and John actually did was the music editor. I think at the end, yeah, he took what I had made and cut it in to, to synchronize it how he wanted it to go. There are stories about John recutting the film and stuff. So in this particular case, did you ever have to come back and rescore anything after John had recut the film from Rosenthal, or is it just that John laid it in the way he wanted it, and that's kind of the way it worked? Yeah, yeah. So so any recuts, he'd still use the material that I I had created for it. Yeah, he just he made adjustments. That's all. But there was no going back and do me something I, I need of this or that besides what you already gave me. Sure. Uh, oh, and the, and the also thing I turned into John besides the scores, I made a whole bunch, bunch of stingers. That was his request. So those which was for for the uninitiated, a stinger is a short sound, somewhat shocking to be used on the cut when you cut to something that wants you to have a, a response to, much like. So those those were separate on a separate track that could be slid around and resynchronized. So back back to if there was a, an adjustment in the cue or in the scene, those stingers were probably the thing that got moved the most. From talking to endless horror fans, being a horror fan myself, I, I know many people that prefer the score to two even more than the first film. So it was a successful venture for sure. Uh, no, I'm quite proud of it. It's very popular. Um, I, you know, it gets it get played during Halloween and the, the various places where music can be played and, and people download it. And uh, even there's ringtones of it. People can get, put it on their, on their phone and they, they think it's very seasonal and that's fun. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, and when we did this stuff, who even knew there was going to be a cell phone back then? We, we just <laughs> did our thing. Yeah. And then here, here we are, you know, 30, 30 plus years later, still talking about it. So there must've been something good to it. Yeah. And then the next Halloween film, Halloween three, It's kind of a brand new score working side by side with John on something completely, di- you know, completely different storyline in terms of the movie. And even though didn't uh, fare so well at the time, Halloween three season of the witch is a film that has gained a lot of love since its release. Uh, it's one of those things when I'm on Twitter and stuff, people, I have a friend of mine that gets angry because he's like, it's not cool to say you love Halloween three anymore because everybody loves Halloween three now, oh. <laughs> but uh, it's also a score that has become pretty loved too. I mean, it's a fantastic score and one of my favorites of the collaborations between the, the two of you guys. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about getting started on that and what went into it. You know, back, back to its popularity, there was an article last fall, not uh, fall 2016, uh, in Rolling Stone about the 35 greatest horror scores of all time. So this was you know, wide open. The, the people who chose the music were from your group, not, not old guys like me, but you know, people that are someone new to it or, or do it from when they're kids. Number one was the original 
Halloween one score. Number two was the score to Halloween two. So here we are with John and then Alan and John having people recognize those two scores as uh, some of the greatest horror movie scores of all time. And then uh, down number 14 was Christine. So, you know, when you're up against everybody who ever scored a, a, a horror movie, that's, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good stats. Yeah, that's fantastic because I, I always feel that the Christine score often gets overlooked because of all the rock and roll music and stuff in it. And it's not a whole, you know, because of the, the rock and roll tracks and everything, you, you guys didn't even write as much music as you usually do for the films. Yeah. So I always kind of think of Christine as being something that gets overlooked because Christine might be that or Prince of Darkness. Mm-hmm. One or the other might be my favorite score from you guys. <laughs> I absolutely love the Christine score. Yeah. Yeah. Back to acknowledgement in the year 2000, there was an article about the 100 greatest film scores of all time. Halloween was like number 70, but Prince of Darkness made it to like 105. It got an honorable mention because it was <laughs> almost in there. So, it, 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 hey, we laid it out. You know, we, we, we did it from really from the heart and from the, you know, the, the tools available didn't hold back us creating a good product. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, today something might get all well, you know, got Cupa, no quantizing and no sequencing and no computers and all sorts. No, no, no. We still we made it out of what was in front of us. And and for me, we didn't think of it as a synthesizer score, although obviously it was synthesizers. But when I was dialing up a string like patch or a brass like patch or a percussion like patch, the, the synthesizer made a sound that was similar to. So now here's here's this back to the word hybrid. It's not really of string, but it's a nice sound. Yeah. It's not really brass, but it's nice sounds. And those sounds have become iconic in the world of horror movie scores. Funny side note, and I'll jump into it. I just start, recently started on a movie called Hoax. Mm-hmm. It's a Bigfoot movie by uh, new director, Matt Allen. And what he did is he said, Allen, can you just do all that analog stuff you used to do in the 80s? So, so in, in 2008, I had actually sold my Prophet 5 and my Prophet 10 and my Oberheims and stuff like that. But I just went out and had to buy rebuy a, 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 a profit five which which I, I was thrilled to do and I, it's like it's for me it's like Jimi hendrix not owner of the stratocaster I, I should have one of those so yeah, yeah i went i went ahead and got it and, and we're thrilled to do the original machine because you know there's software versions of this stuff sure and i actually sat there i wanted to do the test software version native instruments profit five software version artura profit five and real profit five yeah and there's just a warmth, a little fatter out of the original instrument. Yeah. Because think of it, that, that's the real thing. And then the softer ones are like digital photographs of those things. And so, so they, they did their best. But anyhow, we, we digress. Back to Halloween 3. <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in all of it. Yeah. So, so Halloween 3. So Halloween 2 is done. John's done with the thing. Tommy Lee Wallace is the film director. John's sort of in the background shepherding it, having a little bit of input. But it was really Tommy's baby. And so it comes time to score it. And John's actually looking forward to scoring it because he doesn't have to be the director. He's not responsible for the movie. There's other people doing that job. He comes over to be a composer. So we sit down. We play the latest Tangerine Dream LP because this was before any of that stuff for inspiration. And then curiously, John looks at me and he says, Alan, this is going to be real easy. All we got to do is rip ourselves off, which is his way of saying, I loved what we did on Escape from New York. Let's just keep doing that. So the first thing we did was the cue called Cherries of Pumpkins. 
And it was sort of my turn to do something to set the tone. So I dialed up on the on the ARP sequencer with the sequential thing and the avatars, a the the main sequence that is Charity of Pumpkins. And very interesting tracking it, uh, you know, in several passes with different tonalities, even though it was the same synthesizer with little adjustments. And then also using a feature that's in synthesis called an LFO, uh, which is a you know an oscillator that slowly rises and falls, and uh, using that on the filters, so it wasn't always the same sound. It had a, a you know a slow meandering change on each of the takes. So there's a you know the up and downs of of the growth of the the intensity of the sequence back down, and then the the, the sort of the lead instrument that you hear. Ba-da-ya. So uh, that's me playing on the Prophet Five. So that was the beginning, and that one, and also that was that was joined with the opening title sequence. Remember, there was all that graphics. Mm-hmm. So we we so we did the droney part, and then later on, I very precisely programmed the sequencer uh, at different tempos with different tones to synchronize with the the on and off pulses of the of the graphics. also made the musical and tempo and stuff like that so there was a little extra detail on that uh then we start off on, on the movie and you know there's I, I guess there's a certain little flavor from john of the stuff he did in the fog this you know da, 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 da. Which Halloweenish, fogish, but now a new one for Halloween three. Yeah, and and so he liked it because it wasn't Halloween, but it was Halloween-ish. It had its own unique rhythm, and and a lot of lot of other younger musicians come back to me, and that Halloween three opening, Cherries of Pumpkins, is just one of the iconic cues from that time in in movie music. It just, it just works. In fact, I really enjoy it. I start, when I do my live concerts, it's my my opening opening number sets the mood for the whole rest of the the catalog being played. Yeah. Now, in the book, you kind of describe that your method at the beginning with working with John is John would kind of lay down what was basically the main mm-hmm. theme, and then uh, eventually you would come in and kind of orchestrate around it with some extra touches, layer it a little bit. Aside from the cues that you created for Halloween two, but in terms of collaborating directly with John was Halloween three, the first time you really got to drive a little bit in terms of creation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, it wasn't, it wasn't as important a movie, you know, John was reluctant to even do the sequence in the first place. And when we did Halloween three, it was John and Deborah's idea to depart from Michael Myers and start a Halloween anthology where every year they could do another story that took place on Halloween with some other flavor. Yeah. But when Halloween three went out there and everybody went, what happened to Michael Myers? It created a, a, a bit of a rift in the universe. And, and so John wanted to, if, if we, if, if he had to go back to Michael Myers, he wasn't interested. So they sort of agreed to 
agreed to disagree, and John and Deborah stepped out of it when we got to Halloween 4. But, you know, that's what it is. They still got their checks. They were happy. They didn't care. They already had this huge successful thing. But where was I? Oh, so, so, yeah, I mean, think of it this way. We got, by then, I think we actually had synchronization of sorts where I could roll the picture and the tape recorder would roll with it. So John's uh, comment there was he loved this method because he, he referred to it as the electronic coloring book. So he could watch the movie, perform the music while watching the movie, and that was much more inspirational for him for the arrangement. You know, this goes here and this goes there, and we put this here, and et cetera, et cetera, just by watching the movie and doing it. So nothing was ever written down. It was all improvised on the spot. Yeah. And, and so that's what went into that. And because John didn't want to know anything about the technology. I mean, there was times when I'd try to explain it to him, and he says, Alan, I don't even want to know. That's your job. So, so his interface was sitting in front of the black and white notes and pushing them up and down as, as needed. Uh, my job was to make sure all the studio went, worked well. And that was easy because it was my studio. Yeah. I had all the gear. He had the movie. He came over. We made his scores on my studio. And so the managing of the sequencers and the presets and the, what sounds are up and, you know, getting the tape recorder rolling and switching to the next track to record. I was, I was the recordist engineer guy. And then, you know, sitting right next to him and, there would be times when I dial up uh, something, you know, back then, Skip New York, you know, something where it goes bop, 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 just some, you know, little note pattern, but that stimulated the rhythm, which then went to how we do the layers and things would just grow by listening to one track and using that to to uh, dictate or inspire us to what 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 was next. In the case of Halloween Three, because John was producing the film and doing the score. Uh, you didn't really work much with Tom Lee Wallace other than the jingle. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah and, you know, Tommy was welcome to come over whenever he wanted and he did stop by to see how it was going. So somewhere, I don't remember we were done or not. I'm not quite sure. But uh, Deborah Hill called up and said, oh, we were going to need some music for the jingle. For me, it was like, what jingle? You know, the one on the TV. Well, it wasn't on the TV yet. You know? <laughs> yeah. So. So, but you know, it was, it was explained to me and I think I, I did send some sort of test version of it so I could kind of see what's going. So Tommy came over to the same studio. I worked in with John, with uh, John, this time it's me and Tommy. Uh, and Deborah's instructions are to create the jingle to the melody of London Bridges Falling Down. She wanted something that was what in the public domain. She wanted nobody to ever come back and sue that we took their something like whatever they had in the world of commercials. You can imagine how those people are. Yeah. So three more days to Halloween, 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 London bridges falling down, falling down, falling down. It's the same thing. So that was, that was the core of it. And then Tommy had, he actually played some, a lot of the keyboard on it because he had some other musical kitty exercise that he knew that he inputted to the sequencers. And then I recorded that and then began to manipulate the sequencing. On the instruments, and actually by then the flotilla of synthesizers, the ARP Quadra had gone away, and we now had a Prophet 10, which was a double Prophet 5, and there were internal sequencers to those machines over and above the ARP sequencer, which was the, the primary driver of sequencing at the time. 
So you could do more more elaborate sequences. You weren't limited to 16 notes. You could do things that were, you know, several phrases long and play them, speed them up, slow them down, and half time them, and all that kind of stuff. So, and then the vocals on the uh, on the thing are Tommy and I. The you know the the announcer is Tommy, and then the two more days to Halloween, Halloween. We did sort of the chipmunk style where I slowed the tape recorder down. We then recorded our normal voices, but slow. Three more days to Halloween. Halloween. That kind of thing. And then we spread the tape back up to three more days to Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. So, so that was the, the craft there. Yeah. And it, it's the oddest thing, but it still works. It, 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 it fit the idea of the company making the mask that's going to kill kids. Sure. You know, it was seditious. It you know, sucked the kids in, and it was going to kill them. So, oh, I mean, well, you can count on as Halloween's approaching. However many days to Halloween it is on social media, somebody will oh yeah take from YouTube or something <laughs> that that commercial or you know from the film and play it. You know, to kind of let everybody know it's eight more days or whatever. That's right, kids. Today is the big show. <laughs> How much time? You know, when John did the thing. Because uh, there's the story as to he needed some extra music in the cutting room and he decided not to go back to Morricone for more music. So he came over to mm. your place and you guys did a few cues for the thing. How far in between the sessions for those couple of thing cues between that and Halloween three? Like, what's the timeline? Mm. Now you're going to really test my brain. <laughs> Even though we see like, you know, the release dates of the film and stuff, I think it's kind of hard for fans to like myself to put into perspective that this was all happening in a very small amount of time, really. I mean, when you think of it, you guys were putting out some of the greatest scores of all time in only a a couple of years. (laughs) Yeah, no, I start, I started at the very uh, end of 1979 on escape New York with him. And then 1988 was they live. So that was that full, full blast of, of material in eight years. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we average one a year because there's, I think there's seven plus some parts and stuff like that directly working with John. But the answer is the timeline. I think, thinking that we must have done those cues for the thing first because John wouldn't have time to get involved in Halloween three until he was wrapped on the, on the thing. Yeah. And then, and those cues in, in the thing, if you really listen to them, they're very similar to what we actually really did on Christine. Yeah. It was, it was from that same palette. Yeah. And I told John, you know, to me, you know, of course, there's Marconi's like main theme. To me, like the sound of the thing is those is those cues, the ones that you know you guys did. Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah, when, yeah. when I think of the thing, like that's what I hear in my head even more than the Marconi music. It was just so desolate and perfect for that movie.
you know, it made it a John Carpenter movie. Yes, absolutely. So, so it's a, for those that don't know the story, I'll summarize really quick. So the original composer is Ennio Morricone. John hires him. There's a language barrier. Ennio only speaks Italian. John speaks English. There's an interpreter in between. John spots with him. Ennio goes away. He comes back with a bunch of music cues that are all very orchestral. Uh, and we do hear them in the movie. They're not like they've been thrown out, but they're, they're the stuff that's not part of the John Carpenter as sound. And then John was like, how do I tell Ennio that uh, this is not exactly what I had in mind? Well, he turned around and played uh, Ennio some of the score from Escape from New York and said, can you give me something like this? So then Ennio went back for a second pass, got a couple studio cats of synthesizers, stuff like that, and created that iconic opening theme. And and maybe some other stuff too. I, I never tracked it totally. But then uh, the movie's cut. It's, 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 it's taken place. John's still in a mode where there's optical effects are kind of holding up ever ever being done done uh and you know that was a huge project and ambitious thing on rob oteen's part for all those visual effects yeah yeah so 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 he, he said hey listen you know i'm gonna come over this afternoon i'm gonna make make a couple other cues up you know very casually and we sat and did those things in oh a three-hour session or it wasn't a big long thing Now that they never really, unfortunately, even though it was a waxwork, I think put out a thing album. I was really hoping if you were gonna, if they were gonna do it, it would have been great to be have to have been able to include those cues. But really, the only place we could hear those cues is the CD where you redid the score, right? That's correct. Yeah. So uh, BSX Records uh, contacted me and wanted me to make a new recording of the thing. And include those incidental cues that we did, which which I did. So there's a CD out there. I think it's for download too, possibly. But if you search the the thing, uh, it's not the official looking artwork because you know that cost. It was all done on a lower budget. Sure. But actually, uh, myself and Larry Hopkins, who helped me, we did a great job of re-recording the Morricone music. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, because it was done with modern instruments and, you know samples and stuff like that and larry's an expert at just making the samples as living orchestra as possible it's almost a better recording than the original yeah yeah i remember a friend of mine who actually who i've told you about he's the one that i describe at the beginning of your chapter in the book who wanted to move to glendale and sleep in a cot <laughs> in your room <laughs> in your studio yeah, yeah, i remember right. when that cd came out you know i remember him being so excited to hear that music from the thing not just what was on the traditional soundtrack mm -hmm. okay that's about the midway point and a good place to stop for now i of course need to thank alan for being part of the show Please come back in two weeks for part two of this conversation, when we will discuss his work on Halloween's four through six. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. 
Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts. And on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Alan and shop for Alan Howarth signed soundtracks at alanhoworth.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. The soundtracks discussed in this episode were Halloween 2, which is available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. Halloween 3, which is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. The Thing by Neo Morricone is available on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records, and in the Alan Howarth re-recorded expanded edition on both vinyl LP and CD from BSX Records and Note for Note Music. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. And please come back in two weeks for this conversation's exciting conclusion. <laughs>